Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and in this episode, I talk to BBC presenter Jamie Robertson about how to craft a compelling business story, how to structure it, how to illustrate it, how to use numbers to back it up, and how to find the best angle on your story. In the meantime, I just wanted to give a big shout out to Liat, Sasha, Brian, Ricky, Matthew and Leslie for your comments and reviews. Your support is what keeps this podcast going. And to other listeners out there, if you enjoy the show, please do leave a review wherever you listen, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher or another platform. Now, let's get straight to the interview. So, Jamie, you specialise in reporting on international business and macroeconomics. What is the appeal of reporting on those topics? Um, it's the great challenge is making complicated things simple. I mean, that is the real the real art to it. And I mean, all all subjects really can, can be made as complicated as you like. But business, in particular, can be very complicated, and economics can be very complicated. And it's really important, I think, to be able to try and simplify it down. There is a basic rule in in television, particularly, and really to a certain extent in radio, that you can only get three three facts out. And Andrew Clayson, as editor who used to work on Business Daily, who ran Business Daily, used to say that actually when you put out a report, you tell people what you're going to say, then you say it, and then at the end you tell them what you have told them. So really, you have to reinforce things again and again in television and these news broadcasts. Now, in something like radio and in the longer format, you can explain things in more detail. And that means following through arguments, telling longer stories. still quite simple stories, but longer stories without getting too complicated. So what do you think is the secret to unpicking all that? corporate jargon and tech talk that we see in so much of business writing? Well, the, simple, the simplest thing to do is, is really try and imagine, and you, you do tell people to do this when they're sort of starting out, you tell people to imagine you're stuck at a dinner party or a social engagement with your antique aunt, and you're trying to explain to her something about, say, the financial crisis or about um, bond yields or something, and you'd say... This is what I've got to do. I've got to explain it to Aunt Marjorie, and that's the way I'm going to do it. And you try and break things down into um, the most simple terms. One of the key things is you don't mention any numbers, or at least if you do, you keep them very, very simple. So you round numbers up, for instance, if something, you know, Marks and Spencer's has made 5.2689 million pounds um, profit or whatever, you say, it's made just over £5 million profit. You round things up because people cannot take in when they're watching television or listening to radio, for that matter. They can't take in more than one or two numbers. They really can't. I mean, I can't. I don't know how anybody else can. It's, you know, it's not possible. Numbers should be used as a backup to a fact. You explain a fact. You say, Marks and Spencer's profits have dived this morning. I mean, you say they're down 20%. But that it's a, the number is backing up a fact that Marks and Spencer is in problem. It's got problems. That's that that's the way to do it and see that as evidence rather than being a story. A lot of people say do it the other way around and say Marks and Spencer's profits have fallen twenty five percent. You know that's right. Marks and Spencer's profits have fallen. They're in trouble. That's the story. And so you're trying to tell a story rather than to tell a person numbers because people aren't going to understand numbers. And I think that's that's pretty key to um, 
to uh, to financial reporting. But again, within that, something very important as well is, and I think this is really important of all journalism, is you're trying to tell stories, and it's quite a it's quite a cliche now, isn't it, about telling narrative, getting a narrative. But it's every very, company's got to have every company's got to get a narrative. Well, it's true, it's true because people like to listen to stories. They like to listen to stories where you have not exactly a beginning, a middle, and an end, but you have something which which starts and progresses and develops or has a sort of dynamism, which a conflict of two different interests. You know, you've got a, an activist shareholder fighting against the board, wanting to sack the, the chairman or whatever it happens to be. So you have all these different dynamisms within the story, which create something interesting to listen to. Not so much recently, but say five, ten years ago, there was a trend towards what people call relevance. That everything's got to be relevant to the audience. Now, I don't really believe that. I think that's completely wrong. And the World Service is a classic example of how wrong it is. Because the World Service tells you stories about people you've never met, you never will meet, who have no interest in, really, and have no relevance to your life. And they, and uh, you have no relevance to theirs. And yet, there are stories there which can grip you from start to finish. And that's because they're telling you a good yarn, and at the end of it, you feel you've known something which you didn't know before. And that, to me, is the most important thing of all kind of broadcasting, all kind of writing, really, is you do have to tell a story. So what are the ingredients of that good yarn? Um, well, as I was saying, as a kind of dynamism, I think. There's got to be sort of conflicts. There's got to be one person... It's a sort of old classical idea, isn't it, of, of, of Greek theatre, is that you do have to have conflicts between um, one set of people or one person and another and once you've got that conflict then you have real interest um, that's what's always so prob problematic about good news stories which there was <laughs> such a trend for well not a trend for it was a there was a call for why can't we have more good news stories well actually you know there's no there's no conflict there's no interaction really i mean i suppose you can have a, a story which consists of a sort of a struggle against the odds. I suppose, you know, that, that's not too bad. And, you know, all ends happily ever after. That's good. You can do that. But there has to be that conflict at some point. And I think that is very crucial to any story. Yeah, so what story would you say you are proudest of telling? I quite like doing stories which come up with unexpected, um, unexpected twist or unexpected uh, angle, which I think just gives people an insight into a situation which they didn't realise. Now, there's been a great trend over the last several years about the decline of the retail industry. And obviously, it is having terrible problems with a lot of companies going bust, going into uh, liquidation, having uh, various problems, and, and that sort of drying up of the high street. However, it turns out that the independent re retailers are doing very well. And it's quite interesting about why they're doing very well. And it's to do with an interest in the public with human interaction, talking to individual people in small shops, is to do with the small shops being able to react to consumer demand very quickly and very instinctively in the way that a big chain can't. So if a retailer in a corner shop wakes up one morning and sees that you know, there's piles of unsold copies of The Times, I'm not going to sell The Times anymore. And he decides that then and there. Whereas, you know, in a big chain, they say, oh, well, we better do a little bit of a survey on this, how many copies of the Times have been going, you know. Get it signed been... off by... Yeah, I get it signed group. off by all the various people up the hierarchy. And, uh, and, nothing, and, and very little happens. Whereas these small shops can react very quickly. And I went to see a number of them. They're doing well. But it's the big chains who can't react to changing tastes, um, which are the ones that are having, um, 
having problems. Now, so, I mean, I'm not reasonably proud of that story. I mean, I, I, I just give an example of that sort of, sort of an interesting story, a kind of story I quite like doing, which just gives a slightly unexpected, unexpected feel to it. You mentioned this word, angle. Can you angle. elaborate on what you mean by that? Take an example of a, a company, right, which is having problems selling stuff in the shops, let's say. I don't Company A. What is what is going wrong here? Do you start your story by saying Company X is struggling to find new customers on the high street? Do you say Company X is fighting a border battle to keep its managers in place? Do you say uh, Company X has had its uh, reserves bled dry by its chairman who's taken all its money out in this huge great dividend in order to buy himself a yacht? Which one of the... Those are all angles. So which angle do you take? Because presumably all of those could apply. All of them could apply, and you may bring those into a later, later part of the story, depending on how long the story is. But very often when you're doing news... You sometimes have time only for one angle, so you have to choose just one, and which is the most important. The general rule is the most up-to-date when you're doing news, but also it's just what's the most interesting. What is the one that makes you go, oh, oh, that's interesting. That's that's what you're looking for, is the one that makes you sit up and go, oh, God, I didn't know that. Even if perhaps it's a little bit old. We were deciding whether to do a story on... It was a business, a radio business programme, and there was a choice of two stories... And one was uh, negotiations between the EU and Mercosur, which is a trade uh, grouping of South American countries. The story that day was there were problems with the agreement between the EU and Mercosur. That story, or were we going to do a story about the floods in Mumbai? And the floods in Mumbai, we could get a live interview with our reporter who's sitting in Mumbai um, and could tell us all about it. And my decision at the end was, even though the Mercosur story possibly was more important, I wanted to listen to somebody telling me how awful it was sitting up to your, in your knees in water and give me a graphic description, which they did, a very good description of what it was like to be sitting in a flooded Mumbai. Which, let's face it, Mumbai is one of the financial capitals of the world, and yet it means it brought to a standstill by the fact that the monsoons had come tickly heavily. And they were giving descriptions of things like, you know, electrical cables hanging down in the water and people being electrocuted, you know, talking about all the sewers all completely gummed up, talking about the problems in the city, the fact that there are too many people in the city in too small area. You know, all that sort of stuff, which gave very graphic, exciting and very relevant images, word images, I should say, it was just more fun, more interesting. And I said we could, we did. I can't remember if we did do Mercosur. I don't know if we covered Mercosur on the EU. I don't think we did actually. I think we felt it was too boring, <laughs> too abstract by the sound. Sounds yes, yes. Trade stories are difficult. You see, that's another example of trade is always it is a very difficult thing to make interesting. But you can, you can, but you have to bring out specifics. You, know, you have to talk about things like taxes put on oranges or talk about the price of oranges in the shops or examples do make these things come alive they really do so if we were talking to somebody the other day about some of the fishing industry um, and problems of fishing fishing industry and brexit and they were talking about the sort of uh, poverty in some of the small fishing villages around the north of scotland i said you know can you give me an example of that and yes and they could talk about a small fisherman who'd been sharing a boat and they'd gone out of business and that they now were unemployed and so you know you get a picture a picture through one person of what the whole the whole problem is. Most of my clients are in the corporate yes. world, and I feel like I spend my life trying to wean them off abstraction 
and give me examples. Paint me pictures. But they must, even in the corporate world, they must deal with specifics. Or do you think they spend their whole time trying to generalise, trying to make everything into rules and general patterns which will fit an entire corporation? And so they can say, well, we know that all our people are over 35, therefore we must now recruit people under 35, you know, in order to be able to change the age mix. And so they talk about age mixes and things like that. What they don't talk about, even though their experience is the fact that they go around the factory floor or wherever it is and they see that everybody there's ancient. <laughs> and, and, you know, they do see the specifics, but they spend their time translating it into general rules about how to run a company. Maybe that's a problem, I don't know. And I and, and you are faced with that the whole time because they are, these people, corporate, you know, directors or all, all the rest of it, they're giving you very overarching descriptions, descriptions which cover their whole business, rather than saying, I met young George the other day, he's working down on factory floor and he's not young anymore, he's... 78, and he's the youngest one there, you know. (laughs) That's what he should be saying, and that's what he's seen, but that's not what he tells you, because he wants to make big, all-encompassing statements and rules, which is how his business works. His his business works by making rules. We must only employ people under 35. That's our new rule. Because he's gone away, he's moved away from, from noticing the specifics onto making general rules which he can follow and his workplace can follow, which is only employ people over 35, or under 35. There's a safety in that. There's a safety in that for him, yes. Yeah, and, and also it's a way to you run a business, I suppose. You make up these rules. You can't, you can't run a business by just, you know, looking at individuals and individual situations. You have to look, you know, what are the rules here? What are the trends? What are the, the general sort of condition of, of, of the factory? I suppose it goes back to that point about the difference between the chains and the, when I was talking about that retail story, you know, in the retail, the small business businesses can see on a day-to-day how his, you know, his writing paper is selling or his newspapers are selling or he sees each individual thing, whereas a big chain doesn't. They think in very general terms, they think, mm, yes, well, across 40% of our shops we've got, um, the Times is only selling, is, is not selling at all, but the other 60% it is selling, so therefore we're going to keep the Times, you know. So they, they, they have a, they established a general rule. They don't look at specific examples anymore. And I think that's the problem when you're reporting on it. What you want to do is to pull them back to give individual examples, individual pictures, work images, you know, which, which can, then can be seen by the audience and can then be, can make the audience understand a bit better what's going on. Hi there, Claire here. Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit dorisandbertie.com for show notes, past episodes, a wealth of writing tips, and claim your free copy of my ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Back to the interview. Tell me a little bit about a typical working day. One of the things you have to understand about most news is it is a processing industry. You may have rather fanciful ideas about going out collecting these stories, you know, these great stories, and bringing them back to the newsroom and sort of saying, delivering them on air or doing these fantastic reports which get sent in from, from the Sudan or wherever it is. Well, that's a very, very small proportion of news coverage. 
That information is gathered by the wire services, very often through press releases from institutions, governments, water companies, WHO, the IMF, all these various acronyms across the world. And they send out all this stuff and the wire, report, the, the wire services report them. Some of them go out and discover individual breaking stories, but it's really at the edges, right at the fingertips, at the edge of the body of news. Main part about news is to suck in all that information and then spew it out again in various forms, radio, television, online, tweets, uh, social media, Facebook, the whole flaming lot. So the organisations like the BBC, ITU, the whole lot of them, they are all processing organisations, which makes it all sound very unglamorous. I, I still enjoy it. I still It's great fun, but it's not... If you want to be a news hand, like I was actually on a local newspaper, which is interesting, you see a local newspaper is much more going out and finding those individual stories. You're much more at the cutting edge. And I was never very good at that. I'm much better as a news processor, somebody who sort of sits there, looks at all the stories, weighs up which one's interesting, which one's not, rewrites it, changes it. I mean, you have all these different writing styles which you'll produce in order to be able to present it to the public, either on radio, on whatever, television or whatever it happens to be. Um, radio is interesting and different. The writing is more imaginative, it's looser, more conversational, because all you have is the words and the tone of your voice. And I find that I find that the most exciting form of writing, because it's it's more it's more demanding of your imagination. You have to come up with these word pictures. You have to be imaginative. In the written word on an online piece, or in a newspaper for that matter, you have to be factual, you have to be very accurate, because people can go back and look at stuff again and again and check whether you've said the right thing. In television particularly, you're much more impressionistic. It's an impressionistic medium. You're giving an impression of what's going on. You're not being specific. Radio is a little bit of, it, a little bit of both. You do have to be accurate. Um, people do listen very carefully to what you say but they listen to how you say it, they listen to your tone, and your tone, your intimacy, which you have with that reader, is incredibly important, and that's absolutely vital. And that's a very difficult thing to get, um, and you get it through experience, and it takes a long time. And some people have it naturally, of course, but... If someone wanted to break into broadcast journalism, what would your advice be? Um, the thing is that the, 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 um, the edges of broadcast television between all the different forms of media are blurring so much. You, you're right to call it broadcast journalism, um, but it, even so, it's not even just broadcast. It involves online, involves writing. It is quite extraordinary because I think when I started off, people imagined that writing as a form of journalism would disappear. And of course, it's not. It's just morphed itself onto online. And people used to think that's why they introduced 24-hour television, 24-hour news. They thought, you know, 24-hour news is the way it's going to be and of course it's not it involves the written word much more and, and you know you get your stuff on your on your um uh your mobile phone you know the sort of five minute one minute two minute little broadcasts and it's all that's written underneath there because people don't expect you necessarily to listen to what you've got on your mobile phone you've all the script is written at the bottom so the the, the written word is still as important as the as the um as the spoken word is as important as the, the visuals. So if you're going to get involved in broadcasting, if you're going to get involved in any kind of media, 
you really have to get across as much of it as possible. And it's so different in my day. I mean, I went to television thinking, this is where I want to be and this is where I'm going to stay. But, you know, the world has changed and I'm sort of involved in all of it. Once I was doing one something on the British Chambers of Commerce conference, standing outside Westminster, outside the um, Queen Elizabeth Hall, and you're sitting there, you're interviewing Sadiq Khan, who comes up and sort of you do him. And um, uh, so that goes out live. And then you turn around and you speak into your phone, hold your phone up in front of you and you will do a uh, quick sort of talk into your phone. You'll tweet that uh, or put it on Facebook. You will then perhaps do a radio interview and um, you may even write it up for online as well. Now, I think probably the best way, the, the best way is doing a course now. You know, 30 years ago, I'd have said go on to local newspapers or local radio or even local TV. Now I would have said, yes, do that if you can get in, but it's very difficult. But I'd also say try and do one of the really good courses at Cardiff or City or whatever. And there are quite a few of them now. And they really will, you know, they'll take you across all those different forms of media, which will be much easier for younger people to pick up than it was or is for me now, because you're just much more attuned to just across what they, what they all are. The route through local radio is fantastic if you can do it. I wish I'd done local radio. I really do. Of all the things I really regret is I didn't do local radio. I think I would have really enjoyed it. But, you know, if you start in local radio, you're not going to stay in local radio. You know, you're, there are so many other things to, 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 to get into. And radio, podcasts, all those things, there's a whole expanding world and different ways to, to broadcast and put your put your, your, your voice out on the radio waves. If you're at university, I'd go for local uh, university radio. That's a really good experience. It's a really good way to start. So, uh, you know, there are all these different different things you can do. And some of them you'll enjoy more than others. Um, and uh, But it is, it's a very broad profession now. Very broad. And of course, you can always end up going to management afterwards if you get fed up with the broadcasting. <laughs> There's room for that too. Are you planning on a no. move upwards? No, I couldn't manage a tea party. I hope as a management. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I went to journalism. And a lot of people go into journalism because for that very reason, they can't think of anything else to do. But to be a proper sort of news hound journalist, you need a hunger for news. That's a real, real desire to know what's going on and a real curiosity and a real interest in people and in what they're saying. You don't have to be able to write. That's a complete fallacy. And, and oddly enough, I probably went into journalism with this vague idea that I wanted to write. And it's just simply not true. It's not, you can learn to write very easily for journalism. And in fact, it's probably better if you start up just being able to sort of string a few words together, you know, to be able to spell a bit. Though, of course, in, in broadcasting, you don't have to spell. In, 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 on air, no one can hear you spell, as they say. So what do you think are the writing skills that have served you well? Well, I think probably the thing that didn't serve me well was a university degree in English because I probably had far too overambitious views of, on, on how to write. And actually, when you're writing in journalistic terms, in a journalistic way, you really have to be simple. You have to be straightforward. You have to communicate ideas, thoughts and facts. You know, who, where, when, why, basically the rules you, you learn when you start. That's what you've got to explain. And... Keeping it simple, keeping it straightforward is key. And I was very reluctant to learn that. Very reluctant. And, and I think it took me years to learn how to do that. You know, just good, just writers who write in plain, simple, straightforward, reasonably conversational English is actually all you need. So don't imagine you have to be able to write well if you want to be a journalist. It's just simply not true. Um, you know, if you, you can, can speak, you can write. If you can speak, you can write. Yeah, even the people who can't speak very well can write. 
<laughs> in fact, lots of people who can speak very badly can write very well. Yeah. So it's, 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 that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to have a real interest in what's going on around you. That's absolutely key. If you're not interested, then just don't bother. Before I let you go, right. I'm going to subject you to our quickfire round. Oh, yes, right. So this is all about your own habits and processes as a writer. What fuels your writing? Coffee, tea or something stronger? Certainly not alcohol. I was once on air drunk and it was awful and I would never ever do it again. But I, honestly, just one single drink and I, I just couldn't, couldn't. I, re, I really was quite nervous, really very nervous actually. Um, it's coffee, largely. Not huge amounts. I've got it's a reasonable restraint. It's going up, gone up a little bit recently, but only, I think, three cups a day maximum. When do you like to write? Are you a lark or an owl? I think I'm probably an owl. Um, I always used to be an owl. When I was at university, I used to say I would never take a job that required me getting up before 11 o'clock in the morning. However, I then got various jobs, in, mostly in television, which meant I had to get up at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, which really is, I really don't like. And now I'm faced with possibly doing a job which gets me to bed at half past two, three o'clock in the morning. And actually, I don't think I mind that. I think I quite like that idea. Because I, I, I rather like the idea of going to bed, going, going back home at three o'clock in the morning and think, oh, I'm allowed to stay and sleep in until 10 o'clock, that's fine. So I think I'm probably still an owl from my university days. Are you a planner or a plunger? No, certainly not. I don't plan at all. And I, I think it's a journalistic quality. Most journalists I know are last-minute people and don't plan very much. And I think it's... Pro I, I, I would hesitate to make a rule out of this, but I think if you're somebody who works well under pressure to deadlines and at the last minute... I think you will be fine as a journalist. We'll give or take one or two other things, but I think it's quite an important uh, quality. I'm not saying that if you are a planner, you won't be able to do it. That's not necessarily true. But but if you're a planner, very methodical, you may find working to tight deadlines very difficult. I mean, you know, you do have to write stuff and you have to get stuff in your head very quickly indeed. Would you describe... Your desk as clear or cluttered? A mess. However long I've been at it, even if I... No, a complete mess. Music or silence? Silence. Um, or, or no, no, that's not... Not silence, not music either. Conversation. Stuff's got to be going on around me. I find that in a studio, I like to have the... When I have my earpiece in, I like to hear the sound of the studio gallery, which you don't hear very much now. The way the technologies work, but it actually rather closes off a lot of the sound. But I think there's nothing worse than hearing nothing when you're broadcasting. Because either the kit's not working, and you've been left in the lurch, and they're shouting at you, but you can't hear. I mean, they could just be saying nothing, I suppose. But there's just this feeling of limbo. You don't know what's going on. So if I hear a gentle buzz in the background of people talking, chatting, I feel perfectly comfortable. And when I'm at work, I can close it off. I can sort of... Um, I just like the, that, that sound in the background. I find, I, I find that the best way to work. Who's your favourite writer? Um, I don't know about this one. I, I, maybe Graham Greene, I think. I, Adam Nicholson I love. But if you're talking about fiction, I think it's probably Graham Greene. I love clarity in prose without sophistication. I think a lot of prose nowadays is very sophisticated. 
And by sophisticated, I mean sophisticated rather in its old sense of the word, which means sort of messed up with 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 too much too many too much com- complexity about the writing, too much clever imagery, where a person is obviously trying very hard. You can see the writer through the prose attempting to be intelligent. Whereas someone like Graham Greene, the writer just disappears, and it is just you know it's magical writing, absolutely brilliant. On that note, what's your best writing tip? My best writing tip is more full stops. It shortens your sentences down. It disciplines your thoughts. Once you've separated your thoughts into individual sentences, you can get them into an appropriate order. You can give your piece structure. And then if you really want to, you can take the full stops away later. But basically, full stops is a really... Really, really important. It's, it, when you get into a mess with your writing and you can't get your thoughts sorted out and everything seems to be spiralling out of control, you put in full stops and it sorts your writing out. And the other thing for anybody who is a who wants to really write rather than be a journalist, I would say you have to write all the time. It is absolutely vital. I knew a couple of people who were artists, brother and sister, my sister was probably a better artist. My other one was probably commercially more successful. But the commercially successful one, every single day, a little um, sketch pad in her back pocket and would be sketching day in, day out, day in, day out. Whereas sister, actually, who was probably a better artist, didn't. But it was interesting as the other one was commercially successful, one who did that constant, constant, constant sketching. Not because they, they felt they ought to, because they just wanted to. They couldn't not, in fact. And I think if you want to be a writer, you have to love putting words down on a piece of paper and you have to do it day in, day out, day in, day out. Jamie Robinson, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much indeed. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you listen. And if you think the show deserves to continue, please, please, please leave a review while you're there. It'll really help get the show noticed. As ever, visit dorisandbertie.com for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. Bye till the next episode.